0: Good morning, and welcome to The Light 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogi, you may call 525-1859 or on your all cellular phone, Star eight eight seven. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll free 877-924-7980. Now let's
1: join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And if you have a specific question that you would like to ask, please call us again locally. The number is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number for those listening through the Internet. And that number is 877. Our call letters WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. There are some who email us directly into the studio, and if that's helpful to you, you can. Uh, the email address is tbl for the Bible Line at wagp.net. So however we can help you, we will do our very best. Rick, is always great to be here for the Bible line in this hour together.
0: It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've gotten a number of questions that have come in. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, bring those up. We had a little change in our uh, software here and didn't update all our passwords, so we've got to kind of get in manually here. But again, as uh, Dr. Berge mentioned, if you've uh, got a question on today's Bible line, uh, go ahead and uh, call us at 525-1859, toll free. or as a lot of people do you can go ahead and reach us at um, uh, the uh, tbl at wagp.net address and uh, pastor a lot of people uh, have uh, asked this question in the past maybe you can uh, go ahead um, and just respond to it as a as a business not as an individual Uh, What is a business required to do in relation to uh, tithing?
1: Well, uh, again, it it comes down to, uh, you know, what is increase for you. Um, You know, a business might make, you know, $5 million profit, but they pour the money back into the business. Uh, You know, God doesn't necessarily expect you to tithe off of that. Now, I know businessmen who do tithe separately, you know, off of uh, their, you know, increase in their business, uh, even funds that don't come into their pocket. But I think you can say this dogmatically and with clarity, that whatever God puts in your hand, uh, what we might in uh, financial terms say is taxable income to you from the IRS, and that is certainly money that you should be tithing off of. But you cannot give God, and I, and I know people, businesses that are very, very successful, and they don't, necessarily want to take more income for themselves. They put them into trust funds, into foundations, or or they just give out of the business to special needs that are found in the Christian community in the body of Christ, and uh, they don't want to take it as income, but they want to give it directly from their business, you know, to different Christian organizations. I think that's fantastic. That, that's really something that's eternal, and uh, that, that's a great perspective in which to have. Uh, you know, again, you can't outgive God, and, and God calls us, uh, though certainly, to give the the increase. Uh, by the increase, I mean what what's considered taxable, so to speak. Uh, that's what you that's what you give back to the Lord in terms of a tithe, ten percent. But it's not simply an issue of percentages; it's a, it's an issue of the heart. So God speaks not just of the tithe, but He speaks of an offering. Uh, Sometimes God will lead us and prompt us to give above and beyond a tithe, and we need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God and His leading in that way.
0: All right, very good. Our next uh, caller would like to know, when a person is delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh due to sin, as the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, does the Bible give examples of what exactly happens to such people once they are in Satan's hands? Once they've been handed over to Satan, does the destruction come quickly or is it something that can take years?
1: It's an interesting question you ask. Uh, it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. So it was reported, akuete uh, is the Greek word. It's, it means broadcast. It was broadcast it was well known. This was not some hidden fact that there was a church member in Corinth who was practicing a kind of immorality that even the Gentiles found disgusting, that someone had his father's wife, namely that they were sleeping with their stepmother. And he says, you've become arrogant and have not mourned in order that the one who's done this deed might be removed from your midst. But he says, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. So Paul says, look, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, namely church discipline. Uh, so I'm going to do it. I'm not there physically to do it, but I'm going to do it in spirit, and I believe God will honor that. And so he says in verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Uh, He says, listen, um, I'm going to remove this person. Uh, There is a protective umbrella that God gives to his people in a local assembly. And that's why church discipline is not something to be flaunted or taken lightly. It's a very, very serious thing. I dialogued with a man a few months ago, and he said, oh, you know, so what? They're going to put me out of the church. This is an individual in another state, and I was trying to exhort him to do what was right and. I said it's not a so what it's a it's a big deal I said if you are a genuine believer a true born again believer well number 1 those whom the lord loves he disciplines but when a local assembly a group of believers sanctioned together that you should be under the discipline of that assembly then um you know it's much like job um he was a righteous man he wasn't living in sin but god gave permission for satan to uh, harm him and not to take his life there was some limits to it well you know here paul describes someone who's actually destroyed it goes beyond just being harmed it goes on to to being destroyed and sometimes uh, that can happen later on in this epistle in, in 1 Corinthians 11 he speaks of the fact that if they had judged themselves rightly, they would not be judged or disciplined by the Lord. But because they had not, he says in 1130, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep or or have died. But the metaphor is sleep and so rightly translated. Uh, So no, there's sometimes a form of discipline that weakens the body, sickens the body, and sometimes prematurely takes the body. Uh, you die sooner than God had wanted you to die, and that can happen, and it has happened, and it continues to happen. So we don't flaunt discipline lightly. Certainly there are people who are removed from the church and nothing happens to them. Uh, there's no discipline, it seems, from God, and and there's no uh, physical consequences or otherwise. Well, it's just because they don't know the Lord. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines So Paul goes on to say, listen, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Yeah, it does. So he says, clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Because, he says, here's the motivation, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Jesus died for us, not to allow us to serve the world, but to allow him to serve him so let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven nor the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth Uh, because of what he's done we are to present ourselves to god as holy and living sacrifices but sin left unchecked in the church one it it has a destructive force Uh, it encourages and sanctions and condones sin and it really destroys the testimony of the local assembly such that our names uh, or our church name or our individual name is blasphemed among the gentiles the name of god ultimately is blasphemed because of uh, a disdain uh, to do what is right anyway let's go to the next question good question all right
0: 5251859 toll free 8779247980 and we had a question from a listener who would like to know how you convince someone that the only way to god uh the uh, to the God the Father is through Christ his Son when they don 't believe the Bible is the definitive Word of God? Do you use scripture anyway, or do we inundate them with facts proving the Bible is true? How do we even start or do we just back away and pray? we'll get to that first uh, we've got a live caller we always give preference to live callers, so let 's go to them now. Thanks for holding good morning you're on the Bible line uh, good morning gentlemen um... Dr. Brogue had a question about the qualifications for a pastor. I had a uh, discussion with a friend of mine um, over the weekend, and he's trying to convince me that there is no qualification for a pastor um, because a pastor is not in charge of anything. Uh, I disagreed with him um, citing uh, First Timothy chapter three. You know, I was calling you if I'm ignorant of this, I was calling to find out if uh, you have a different take on this.
1: No, you're absolutely, you know, on track here. Uh, in noun form, uh, the term "pastor" in reference to the office is not used, but it's used in verbal form, and that's why we can say that the term "pastor," "elder," "bishop," "overseer," depending on your translation and the Greek word used, is used synonymously in the New Testament of the same office. Uh, so he says, for instance, in First Timothy three, that you reference to him. If any man, it, it is a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. And the Greek word there is presbyteros. We get our word Presbyterian from it. It's a fine work that he desires to do. Uh, If you were using the old English, it wouldn't translate it overseer, but bishop. Uh, That's how they rendered it in the King James English and even in some translations today. An overseer then must be above reproach. And he gives the uh, qualifications. Um, so again, he, he's very clear, he's very articulate, very precise here as he speaks of what those requirements are. When you come to the book of Titus, which is another central passage in the New Testament that deals with the qualifications for this office, he says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders. Um, there the word is not uh, presbyteros, but episkopos. Uh, that you might appoint elders in every city, as I direct, as I directed you. Namely, if any man be above reproach, and then he says, for the overseer. So again, he's using two different Greek words: uh, esk, episkopos and presbyteros, One's translated uh, bishop; the other is translated elder. But he's speaking of the same office. Uh, when you <clears throat> come to Acts twenty which is another central passage in the Bible that deals with the qualifications. Paul really in essence describes his living qualifications. It says, um, <clears throat> and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and he called to him the elders of the church. And uh then when you and and then he goes on, he describes what he did all those years when those three years when he was in Ephesus, they are longer than any other uh person. And again he he uses a specific word presbyteros for elder. And then when you come down to verse uh twenty-eight, uh be on guard for yourself and for all the flock, among which um the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And there he uses a different word episcopus uh, or episcopois. It's plural actually. So again, same office. And then he says to shepherd or to pastor the church of God, which uh, he has purchased with his own blood. So the term pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, it's used interchangeably in the New Testament of the exact same office. So again, uh, your your friend, um, no one would agree with him it's uh, not even close, you know, to being on target. The point of disagreement is not over the uh, interchange in, of those terms. The point of disagreement often is what do the qualifications mean and how do they apply today here in the 21st century? That's where the point of Rob comes. So uh, does that make sense? Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, great question. I appreciate it.
0: <clears throat> All right. Very good. Let's go back to that uh, question we had earlier. We uh, had a question from a listener who would like to know how you convince someone that the only way to God the Father is through Christ his Son when they don't believe the Bible is the definitive word of God. Do we use Scripture anyway, or do we inundate them with facts proving the Bible is true? How do we even start, or we, do we just back away
1: and pray? Well, it's a a good question. Uh, Let me answer it on a couple levels. Uh, I just did a series on Wednesday nights, How to Prove the Bible is True. In fact, that's going to be published uh, this fall with Answers in Genesis, and you'll be able to purchase it in your local bookstores. But how do you know the Bible is true? And I give five proofs to show that the Bible is the only book that God ever wrote. I would start there. Um I think that's important. One of the things we looked at is of course what the Bible claims about itself. The Bible claims to be the inspired word of God, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over in one way or the other, either thus saith the Lord or direct statements about the inspiration of Scripture. And that's important because if the Bible didn't claim that, then we would have a real problem. And certainly the uh, credibility of a witness is always important. When you're in a court of law, uh, a jury of your peers decides the credibility of the witnesses and what they're saying and whether the evidence and the facts that they are giving seem reliable and trustworthy. And when you look at the uh, credibility of the various people who made statements or who wrote the scriptures, either statements about the script. Take the Lord Jesus, for instance. I find very few people who would say, well, Jesus Christ is a evil, wicked, heinous kind of individual. Uh, Some blasphemous Satanists might say that, but most even unsaved people in the world won't say that. Even Muslims don't say that. Uh, They they view Jesus as a great prophet. Uh, They believe Muhammad is a greater prophet, the last prophet, uh, but even they wouldn't say that Jesus was some wicked individual. So what did Jesus say about the Scripture? He said they were inspired. You think about the apostles and their own claims concerning their writings and the inspiration of Scripture, Peter claiming to write Scripture, Paul claiming to write Scripture, and so on, and, and really a fulfillment of what Jesus promised in the upper room discourse, that they would indeed write Scripture, that he'd bring to their mind everything that they needed to to record. Um, What were those men like? What what did they have to gain by lying? And and when you read uh, when you read the um, the the New Testament, you 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 have a couple choices. Uh, Either these men were were lying, uh, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. If they were lying, because if they were lying, then they were making you know they, they don't have the characteristics of of someone who is a liar. Uh, these men have the characteristics of, of of men who are men of integrity uh, they're they 're certainly not evil men evil men don't condemn themselves to hell. evil men don't say it 's wrong to steal it 's wrong to lie it 's wrong to commit adultery uh th- that 's something that uh indeed uh wicked men may do uh but not but uh, but not good men good men don 't do that evil men do that so when you look at the credibility of the witnesses, it's it's very apparent that these guys were, you know, far different. When you look at the historical facts that they record, uh, there's never been a single fact ever written in Scripture that has been proven to be an error. Now, there were people like the French Institute of Science that in the 1800s uh, recorded 81 so-called errors in the Bible. Not a single one exists today. Not one. Uh, sometimes, you know, there have been statements made in the Bible that we have not been able to sustain by archaeology or, or human history. For instance, the, the Hittite people, which the Bible describes as a great civilization, uh, describes them throughout the, the Torah and up, up into the Chronicles. And yet it's not until, you know, the last century, early in the last century, that we begin to find out through archaeology that such a people even existed so, you know, again, uh, how how do you reckon with this? How how do you deal with this? Well, you deal with it very simply that uh, God's word is true. Whenever it makes a statement about, you know, archaeology or uh, some scientific statement, you know, there was a time in the world when it was uh, fashionable to believe that the world was flat. That's what most people believe. The world was flat. Well, you know, the Bible taught through the prophet Isaiah and in the Proverbs that the world was round. In fact, Christopher Columbus, based on his understanding of scripture, was not afraid to sail for a new and look for a new world because he believed that indeed the world was round because he believed that's what the Bible said. And so, um, you know, when, when when you put all that information together, I, d- I don't think it's, it's accidental when you look at fulfilled prophecy. But you might want to go to my series that I just recently did, How to Prove the Bible is True. Now, it may be that this person says, don't confuse me with the facts, that they're not interested in even examining what the Bible says about itself. You can't help people like that. But if they are asking honest questions and, you know, when when you're dealing with apologetic issues, sometimes you're dealing with people who are looking for an excuse for unbelief and you can sense that, Um, you know, you can say to them sometimes, look, if I could prove to you definitively that the Bible was the word of God, well, you had absolutely no question that the Bible was the only book on the face of the earth that God wrote and inspired. Would that change anything in your life? would you be willing to uh, therefore believe it? And if they say, well, or respond to it, if they said, well, no, then, then you're wasting your breath. But if they say, yes, if the Bible really is true, and if there's really evidences that I can look at and examine and think about, it would make a difference in my life because then everything in it is absolutely authoritative, and now I have a plumb line in which to evaluate and judge my own behavior. Yes, it would make a difference then you have a a basis in which to discuss and talk about the person, and so you've got to evaluate that you've got to ask that question it's very very important all right five two five one eight five
0: nine toll free eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero. And uh, you can email us at t b l at w a g p dot net and our uh, next caller would like to know should a Christian continue spanking his or her children
1: if it is illegal and I would say absolutely yes because the bible would would teach that very thing. Let me take you to couple passages in the, in the Word of God. Um, most of us can quote Proverbs two six. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And certainly part of that training process involves physical discipline. In the same chapter, he's going to say, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Uh, in proverbs a little bit earlier in proverbs uh, 13 Uh, let me just turn over there proverbs 13 here it is in verse 24 it says he who spares his rod hates his son but he who loves him disciplines him diligently so again a very clear precise statement Uh, he'll also say Uh, Here in the book of Proverbs, uh, let's see, in Proverbs 23, and in verse 14, he makes this statement, you shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. So he says, don't hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him... With the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. Now, beat may sound a little abusive in our day. Uh, More literally, the Hebrew word just means to smite, to hit him with the rod. It doesn't mean beat like beat black and blue. Now, let me just say uh, quantitatively here, when the Bible speaks of discipline, it never speaks of abuse. Uh, God's against child abuse. And many parents have grown up in homes where they themselves were abused, and so their tendencies to go to the opposite end of the spectrum and to offer no discipline at all. And discipline certainly involves corporal punishment. The Bible is very clear through passages like this, what we call spanking. The Bible speaks of the backside, and it speaks of the rod. Um, God created a padded area in which to spank. Uh, you know, when I have counseled people over the years, I've heard all the horror stories, people being pulled around the room by their hair as children, or one Marine telling me how his dad would chase him around the house with a BB gun. People people like that, you know, are just, just. I mean, it's awful. It's just disgusting. It's just sad when you hear stories of child abuse. But then we can throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, then, then we'll never spank. Well, God says otherwise. So who are you going to believe? So number one, you have to establish in your mind, is it biblical to spank? And the answer is yes. And this is just obviously a a brief answer. I have whole sermons on this. You might want to listen to a sermon I did on Ephesians 6 on Father's Day a few years ago. It's online at org, or at our Community Bible Church website where Paul speaks of bringing our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, but with that said, if a country, and there are many countries in Europe where it's illegal to spank, uh, and in a lot of military bases in the United States, it's against the law to spank. So what do you do in situations like that? Well, you, you must obey God rather than men. But my suggestion to you is to spank not publicly, but privately and uh, carefully and wisely. Uh, and, of course if you 're out of control or not a controlled person and you can 't get in control, then it would be best for you never to spank and to find some alternative. But God wants us to be spirit filled people He wants us to be controlled. I mean, how can we tell our children to be in control if we 're out of control ourselves when we spank them uh, we can 't it's it 's sheer hypocrisy, and that closes their spirit and hardens their heart to the instruction that you may want to give. Uh, And again, God indicates a separate instrument. We we never spank with the same hand that we reach out to love them with. God God teaches that you use a separate instrument. You don't use your hand to spank. You use the rod. Uh, There's a number of articles that have been published over the years as to why spanking is ineffective, and it's usually because it's done wrong. It's not done biblically. What the Bible says about child discipline is an excellent book that we've given to parents for years at Community Bible Church. It's written by an author, Richard Fugate. It's very, very well done. Um, It might be worth your while to read that book. Uh, But again, you you want to be careful because even if you're out in and around town and your child gets out of hand, uh, you know, don't spank him in Chick-fil-A. You might get yourself into trouble. Uh, and you need, to, you need to be careful as to how you do it and when you do it and let God give you wisdom.
0: All right, 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980, and email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next listener writes, uh, Dr. Berge, you mentioned knowing the original languages on Sunday, and I loved your quote from your seminary professor. How important is it for someone like myself to learn, say, Greek?
1: Well, that's a good question, and the quote from my seminary professor, uh, one of my uh, Greek profs used to say, you know, you, you don't show off your, your knowledge of Greek. He says it's like your underwear. You don't show it off. You just use it for support, and uh, certainly there are some decisions uh, in understanding certain texts that are very, very helpful if you know the original language. Uh, I think it was Martin Luther who, who said that the, the languages were the sheath in which the Spirit of God places his sword. And I think that's true. Uh, there are certainly nuances of an original word that cannot be translated with any single word. Uh, we open this, um, this uh, broadcast every Tuesday with a quotation from 2 Timothy 2.15. And in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 in the New American Standard says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Uh, The King James says, study and show yourself approved to God. Well, which is it? Um, One translation says, be diligent. And the King James says, to study. Well, the Greek word that's used really has both nuances. And if you're trying to do a corresponding word-for-word translation, uh, you can't, unless you go to some kind of amplified edition Uh, You can't use a single English word to bring out the nuance. Um, You know, sometimes people study, but they don't really study. They may spend two hours in the library as a college student, but they've goofed off or their mind has been daydreaming while they've been reading chapter after chapter out of some book. And if you ask them about their retention, well, it might be really low. So there's a study, but then there's a diligent kind of study. And, And really, it's hard work to study the scriptures. The apostles recognized that in Acts 6 when uh, they gave the responsibility of the serving of tables to others because they said, we have to devote, and the word devote is a word of intensity in the original. We have to devote ourselves to the study of the word of God and to prayer. And so it is hard work. Um, But again, sometimes there's not a single word. And sometimes there's um, different tenses, especially with verbs that don't come out in English. In English, we have past, present, and future tense. Well, they have the same in in Greek, past, present, and future. But beyond uh, that, they they have not only the time of the time, but the kind of time, what we call aspect. So like... um, in Ephesians 5.18, it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You might read that in the English text and say, oh yeah, I need to get filled with the Spirit, and like it's a once in it for once and for all kind of thing. Actually, the word that's used then in the Greek speaks of a different kind of time. Uh, You could translate it, Keep on being filled moment by moment being filled it 's not talking about a, a once and for all experience, but an ongoing lifelong thing that we are to do as believers. Keep on being filled with the spirit uh, that that verb type that he uses is really, really clear. Um, you know I used to describe the difference between reading the Bible in the original languages and reading it in, say, our our own native English tongue between watching a black-and-white TV and watching it in color. Well, people don't have black-and-white TVs anymore, but there's certainly black-and-white movies that people have seen. Or it might be the difference between, uh, say, today, watching television on a 20-inch screen versus some high-definition, you know, 70-inch screen with surround sound. You could see the same movie, get the same information, but some of the fine nuances would be brought out in the uh, latest technology. Well, let me just say, first of all, that if all you ever read in your life is the English text, you could never exhaust it. We could never exhaust it. And, And let me say, too, that a person is not more spiritual because they know the original languages than someone who doesn't. Uh, But if all you had was the English text, the Holy Spirit can teach us from that, and it would take us a lifetime to exhaust it, and we could never do it because the nature of God's Word, it's so deep, it's so rich. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. But on the other hand, I wouldn't be one who would criticize those who do know the original languages because the translation that you have of your Bible— is done by people who were willing to learn the original languages. Uh, that's how we got a translation in the English tongue. Uh, and you can trace the history of the English Bible. And if that's something you really want to study, I, I did a, a 51-week series on bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible. And one of the um, sections, there were six sections to that course, is how we got our English Bible. And I traced the whole history of the English Bible Uh, right down to the various translations that we have today. And I deal with a lot of uh, translations today that maybe aren't so great. You know, and there are, again, a variety of translations. On one end of the spectrum, you'd have what you would call a a pure paraphrase, maybe like the message, which is terrible in places, absolutely terrible. Um, You know, he, he rewrote some passages of the Word of God, um, in, to, I don't know what his motivation was, but he, he you know, like in first Corinthians six, he, he left out homosexuality. How, how can you leave that out of the text and just blur over it? Like it's not even a sin on his list. Um, Paul was real clear about the sin of homosexuality in that passage. And there's a number of other passages which I do a a full analysis of. So that's one end. On the other end of the spectrum would be what you would call an interlinear Bible where you have, say, the New Testament in Greek and below the Greek words, you have the English text. Uh, That would be very wooden, difficult to read because sometimes the first word in the Greek text is the verb. Uh, We usually go subject, verb, object, but they don't always do it that way in Greek and word orders changed up for emphasis. So there's different kinds of translations, and knowing the different kinds and what might be useful for Bible study purposes, I think would be a a great study for you to consider. But, but uh, don't feel bad if you don't know the languages. But neither criticize those who do, because scholarship is necessary uh, to give us whether it's the Old King James or the New American Standard.
0: All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line. Good morning, Ellen. Doctor Brogi. during the seven years of tribulation, I guess I should say after that, um, were there, will there be many survivors leading up to the second coming of, of Jesus? And if so, after that, uh, during the thousand years, uh, I'm, I'm sure if there are people left, that, you know, they'll be marrying and, and having children. And uh, I've, I've often been told that our, the lifespan will be actually going back to like when when Adam and Methuselah, that people will live generation after generation? is. I'm, I'm just a little confused by this.
1: Well, it, it's a good question. And you know, I, I was recently in the Eastern Europe teaching a course on eschatology. And uh, one of the things I covered was 10 reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulational catching up. Now the word rapture is kind of an English word. Uh, it's foreign to say the Slavic people, if you use the term rapture, they don't use the term rapture. They use the word caught up. And, uh, Really, that's that's accurate, because in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be caught up. And the word caught up is the Greek word harpazo, which uh, in the Latin translation of the 4th century that Jerome did, it was rapto, and it came into English as rapture. So I don't care what people call it, the rapture or the catching up, it, it makes no difference. All Christians believe in the catching up of the church, The point of debate comes, when will that catching up take place? And is it synonymous, is it the same as the physical, literal second coming? Uh, There are some people, largely it goes back to how they view Israel, that do not believe that when Jesus comes at his second coming to the earth, that he will literally rule and reign for a thousand years. Uh, Their argument is that uh, the promises made to the nation of Israel were conditional in nature, Uh, that they forsook through their disobedience the promise for a coming kingdom, and therefore uh, the church has taken the place of Israel. Uh, This thought was initially initially presented by someone called St. Augustine. Uh, It was later capitalized by the Roman Catholic Church as they were firmly established. The Roman Church said, no, God's done with the Jewish people. Uh, They're no longer of any great significance in terms of God's plan for the ages. We now, the Roman Catholic Church or the true church, and so you had guys who came out of that church like Calvin and Luther and others, and they carried a lot of Catholic theology with them. They reformed uh, the church or people who were willing to listen to their teachings from the scriptures in a number of critical areas, but not every area. So they said, "Well, the church is not just some institution and organization that you might even have a you know um, an indulgence guaranteeing that you're going to heaven. No, the church is made up of true born again believers who, by grace alone, through faith alone, have received Christ. But they said, in essence, the church was the new Israel, so that flavored their view of future things and what would happen." So there's not a single passage in the Bible, kind of like with the doctrine of the Trinity. There's not a single verse in the Bible that teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. But when you put a number of verses together, it's really clear that the Bible affirms there is one God who coexists in three co-equal eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, the same is true with a pre-tribulational catching up. Uh, The scripture, if literally applied demands a pre-tribulational catching up. How are the prophecies for the first coming of Christ fulfilled? Well, they were literally fulfilled. There's 333 prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus, and every single one was literally fulfilled. When the prophet said he'd be pierced through for our iniquity, that's exactly what happened in the crucifixion. When it spoke of a rich man and his death, that's exactly what happened through Joseph of Arimathea when his grave would be with wicked men. That's exactly what happened with the two thieves, that he'd be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's exactly what happened. That he'd rise from the dead on the third day. That's exactly what happened. Every single prophecy was literally fulfilled. And so when we come to the prophecies concerning the second coming, we shouldn't understand them any differently. Certainly there is... um, Uh, language that is sometimes symbolic. Most of the time, though, the languages, uh, the the symbols are are defined for us in the Word of God. So in Revelation, it speaks of the candlesticks and the stars, but then the candlesticks and the stars are defined as what those symbols represent, what they mean. So uh, Jesus spoke of a coming time of tribulation, uh, a time of tribulation that is unparalleled in human history. He says, in fact, woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. If you're pregnant or you're a nursing mom, not a good time to be alive. Pray, he says, that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So Jesus is speaking here of a time frame that is unparalleled in human history. This is exactly, by the way, what the prophets of the Old Testament described it as in Daniel, Jeremiah. We call it the Great Tribulation. Uh, They called it the time of Jacob's trouble because uh, this is a time frame that is centered around the nation of Israel. Unless those days, he said, had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect. Those days shall be cut short. So Jesus said, look, unless the Father somehow had intervened, um, no one would have survived on the planet. And when you read the Revelation and the judgments that are described, again, if you literally, you know, interpret them, and interestingly, as I've said a few times on this broadcast, John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. And I don't think it was by accident because he didn't really know what to do with Revelation and he wasn't consistent in his hermeneutic and the principles that he used for interpreting the Bible where he would literally interpret some passages but then somehow he'd spiritualize the rest and Revelation was just too much for him so he just left it alone altogether which probably is good because it would have only confused and messed more people up. So when Jesus comes back At his second coming, he will come to the earth. Zechariah, the prophet predicts that in Zechariah chapter 14. And again, you know, you you can spiritualize this text and say, like the Amillennialist says, that there is no literal kingdom, uh, that Jesus is just coming back and he'll catch us up and we'll enter into the eternal state and that's it. Or you can interpret it literally. Behold, a day is coming, Zechariah the prophet said, for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then, then when this happens, when Jerusalem is split in two, something that we're talking about now, our president has been speaking about splitting Jerusalem in half, Uh, A proposal was put in by the so-called Palestinians to the United Nations in September to divide Jerusalem in two. Now, the Bible here affirms it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen through peaceful means. It's going to happen through a battle. But when it does happen, and by the way, that they would even speak of it happening in our day, I think is of great significance. You know, a hundred years ago, you had preachers that preached this and people laughed at them because Jerusalem didn't really exist. Israel didn't exist as a nation. I mean, it was there, Jerusalem, but the Jewish people were not in their land. Uh, And then they became a nation. Uh, But God will literally fulfill this. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet, the Lord, Yahweh, uh, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem the east, and on the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west. So, again, that's a literal prophecy where the feet of the Lord Jesus, Messiah, literally touches the mountain and it's split in two. Uh, So, again, how do you you interpret that? Well, you you have to interpret it literally. So, there's coming a day, I believe the Lord first comes in the air, we shall meet the Lord in the air, not on the earth, but in the air. Uh, we shall meet the Lord in the air. That's the catching up of the church. The seven-year period unfolds. Then Jesus comes back. His feet touched the Mount of Olives. Uh, and again, had he waited longer, another six months, another year. I mean, much longer. Nobody would have survived on the planet because of what was unfolding. I mean, there would have been no food to eat. Uh, because all the green vegetation is gone. All the waters have been turned into blood and so forth. Uh, People just wouldn't be able to survive. Uh, But then he comes, and one will be taken, one will be left. That's at the second coming. It has nothing to do with the rapture. Hal Lindsey, in the 70s, through a book he wrote called The Late Great Planet Earth, said that was the rapture. No one in the history of the church ever saw that as the rapture before he did, He went to the same seminary I did. None of his professors agreed with that, but he popularized that through a best-selling book that was um, more hype uh, than it was fact. Nonetheless, um, what Jesus is talking about, those who are taken away in judgment and those who are left to rule and reign upon the earth. Now, it's very clear that these people who rule and reign with Christ on the earth who enter the millennium, and are in their natural bodies. They have to, because, again, when the Lord comes to catch his people up, we are given a resurrected body like Christ, Philippians three twenty and 21. So if we're given a resurrected body like Christ, well, Jesus said in our resurrected body, we're like the angels. We neither marry nor are given in marriage. So the uh, marriage relationship, in terms of... Uh, you know, having children and so forth, it's over. It's over in our resurrected body. And yet it tells us here, and when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they shall come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire will come down from heaven and devour them. And the devil who uh, deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Jesus comes back. Um, He rules for a thousand years. Revelation 20 verse four says Satan is bound during that thousand years and at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released from his prison, and he deceives the nations. Who does he deceive? I mean, if we're in a resurrected body, and we've been caught up, and in our resurrected body we can no longer sin, we'll be like him, the Bible says, um, we won't have the ability to sin, we'll be eternally confirmed in a state of righteousness, then who, who is going to rebel uh, against God's Messiah ruling here on the earth? Well, it will be the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of some tribulation saints who enter the millennium in their natural bodies. And so, yes, the curse will be lifted off the earth. The lamb will lay down with the wolf. The baby will play next to the cobra's nest. There'll be a long protracted period of time for people to live. Uh, Yet, you know, just like today, God has children but no grandchildren. My 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 children are not automatically Christians because I'm a believer and you know and I and I you know my wife and I brought them into this world. They have to make a decision for Christ. Even so with the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of tribulation saints and not all will choose for Christ, which really tells you how foul the sin nature is because they will have rejected literally God's Messiah ruling on the earth without the devil even to tempt them because he'll be locked up. They will have made their decision. And so then the devil's loosed and he woos them into a battle against God's Christ, which is a foolish battle. And it just ends in their destruction. So when you interpret the Bible literally, and by literally, I'm not saying that We are ignoring figures of speech and metaphors and so forth. Uh, Maybe a better way to say it is a plain interpretation of the Bible, because people often, you know, misuse and abuse the term literal interpretation of the Bible. Uh, You know, and of course, it's convenient for many people. When you speak against homosexuality, they'll say, well, you don't literally interpret the Bible, do you? Yes, I do. the, The plain interpretation of Scripture So, if the plain sense makes normal sense, you should seek no other sense, otherwise you have sheer nonsense. So, we just plainly interpret the scripture and then apply it. So, God within the Bible gave us a hermeneutic, a a principle for interpreting his word. And when you see the New Testament writers and the Lord Jesus interacting with the Old Testament, they interact not in some allegorical interpretation as Augustine did, and many followed that school of thought. And some literally interpreted it like Calvin, but when it came to prophetic literature, he, allegorized, he, 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 he took an allegorical approach. Um, you know, the New Testament writers literally interpreted the text. And so God gave us a principle on how to interpret the Bible and we can't ignore that. So, and we can't ignore history either in terms of how the prophecies for the first coming were fulfilled. Great question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. Very good. Thank you for that caller. And uh, we do have another call coming in here. We'll see if they want to go live. In the meantime, our next caller uh, had emailed their question wanting to know, can you lose your salvation? And if so,
1: how could it happen? Well, let me just give you the quick answer. No, You, you, you cannot. And I would direct you immediately to a series I did called Back to the Basics. And the very first uh, one in that series is called The Eternal Security of the Believer. And so if you call Search the Scriptures or go to the website, you can get that. And it's uh, three uh, 50-minute messages that I did on a Wednesday night And I go through the passages in the Bible that teach the eternal security of the believer. Now, there are over 150 in the New Testament. I don't go through all 150 plus. I deal with the major ones. But there's about eight or nine that people use to say you can lose your salvation. Well, a good principle of interpretation is you always interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. And it's very clear that God doesn't contradict himself, and he plainly stated the eternal security of the Christian. So there's a handful of passages that people even debate their meaning, unclear passages, we might say, if not carefully looked at in their context. And if you approach it very sloppily, You may come to the conclusion that you can lose your salvation. Well, that's embarrassing because then you're saying God wrote the Bible with error and contradiction in it, and he did not. So again, I would direct you to the very first handout in the Back to Basics series, entitled Assurance of Salvation and the Eternal Security of the Believer. And listen to all three messages. By the time you're done, you will have absolutely no doubt in your mind. But you'll also have a clear picture of how the doctrine of eternal security has been abused, and people who say they're eternally secure, when the Bible would say by their fruit, they ought to say that they're lost.
0: All right, very good. We've got our live caller here in about three minutes left. Thanks for calling. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Thanks for calling.
1: Uh, I'm a new seminary student, and um, you had mentioned on a few programs about a a website where you could buy uh, good study books almost at a discount rate. And I was wondering if you could could mention that site again. It would help me build my uh, library. Yeah. um, uh, What I would start is I'd go to half.com, which is the uh, eBay side of used books. And so, like, if you want to buy a, a, for instance, uh, I just bought a a book recently by a a guy who died about 10 years ago at 95, um, and his book was uh, published as an addition to a commentary that he wrote. If I went to Amazon and I wanted to buy it brand new, the book would have cost me about $39 and some change, plus shipping. I found it used on eBay in perfect condition for $4 plus shipping. So uh, a lot of classic commentaries and works uh, you can find used and save yourself a significant amount of money and sometimes get a better edition. Uh, Sometimes when they republish a book, they end up republishing it in a paperback and they never go back to the original hardback that it came out in. But if you go to half.com, you can find it you know, with um, in a hardback original copy. I also have some used bookstores that I know of, one in Durham, North Carolina, one up in Pennsylvania and some other places. If you go to Baker Bookhouse, too, they have a used bookstore. You can go online there. If you just Googled used Christian bookstores, uh, used Christian books um, for sale, you'll get some of these uh, Christian bookstores, and you'll find some classics. So, you know, you might want to go out and, say, buy the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is a two-volume uh, book on the Old Testament New Testament. It costs you about $150. You can probably find it used online for about 25 bucks, So you can save yourself a lot of money when it comes to books. Books are really overpriced, especially if you're a college student and you're buying it from, on the university bookstore. You talk about overpriced. I mean, they're just gouging people there. But they're they're expensive all the way around. Anyway, we're out of time today. I appreciate that question from that seminary student. And um, if you have a question, we didn't get to it. Maybe, God willing, we can do so next week. It's always a privilege to be with you here on the Bible Line. Uh, This is posted online every week so that people can go back and listen to it. Uh, Some people uh, email their question in ahead of time knowing that they're at work and can't listen to their answer live. But then they'll go back and look at the posting. The questions are put in the order that they came in, and then uh, they can listen to their answer. Hey, listen, have a great day. May the Lord bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ.